this morning, we are continuing in our series through the one-year Bible reading plan that we've been working through all year uh, as a church. We're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That was part of your reading. This week, we were in First and Second Thessalonians and then the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. Uh, so we're 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. Um, so the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter uh, written by Paul to the church, church in Corinth. And God had done a, a great work in Corinth. In fact, the only place that Paul stayed longer than his 18 months in Corinth was Ephesus. Paul stayed three years in Ephesus total. Uh, but he was in Corinth for 18 months. Uh, Paul started the church uh, in Corinth on his second missionary journey, and it was amidst a lot of opposition, a lot of persecution taking place there that that church was started. Uh, Corinth was uh, an interesting city, an interesting place. It was known for three things primarily. It's many gods and the temples that were erected and dedicated to them. It's sexual immorality and it's renowned as a place where great orators and philosophers would go and, and charge money to give grand speeches. So uh, it was a proud city. It was a place where it was all about uh, who was uh, the most, who was the greatest and, and who could speak the best. It was a, play, a city where you went to indulge yourself. It was a, a port city where there were all kinds of cultures coming in and out of the, of, of the, the city of Corinth because of the port that they had. And it was into this climate that the Apostle Paul and his team arrived and began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly uh, while facing opposition both from Jews and from Gentiles. From all sides, there was opposition. And by God's grace, a church was planted, and the Corinthian believers began to serve God and to use their spiritual gifts, and God moved powerfully among them. But apparently... Word had gotten back to Paul after he had planted this church and moved on uh, that there was trouble in paradise. Uh, somebody, Chloe's people, is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which was probably one of the house churches uh, in Corinth, uh, had written a letter to Paul telling him that the believers were divided. There was, there was fighting going on between the believers and there was disunity amidst the church. Uh, apparently, many of the Corinthian Christians were arguing, arguing over which Christian teachers to follow. So some wanted to follow Apollos because he was a better speaker than Paul. And some wanted to follow Paul because he first brought the gospel to them. And some wanted to follow Peter. And some were super spiritual and said, well, I follow Jesus. So there was all of this, this, this fighting going on and, and people arguing about who was following the right teacher, who was more spiritual than the other Instead of focusing on pleasing God, they were measuring themselves against each other with worldly criteria like which one of them was the wisest and the most intelligent. And the, the impressive commodity in Corinth in the first century was, was wisdom or intellect. And when we think of wisdom, we, you know, biblical wisdom is different from the type of wisdom that uh, the Corinthians pursued and that, we tend to, that the world tends to pursue today. Uh, the wisdom uh, of the world uh, says, uh, what do I need to do to gain the most power, to have the most leverage so that I can have the most money, so that I can have the most pleasure, so that I can live the longest? Wisdom, uh, gaining wisdom is about how can I do what's most advantageous for myself? That's quite unlike biblical wisdom, and we're going to talk about that this morning. 
the, the believers in Corinth were being heavily tempted to pursue those accolades in the culture. And the problem, as Paul is going to explain, is that this is antithetical to the gospel, this pursuing uh, wisdom for your own personal gain. This trying to be greater than the people around you is antithetical to the gospel. Jesus came on the scene saying, whoever wants to be first should be last. Jesus said things like, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must sell everything that he owns. He said things like, unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And the people of Corinth were losing sight of this because the siren song of cultural respectability was calling to them. And they were forgetting just how much grace God had actually given them, and they were following, following in line with the prideful nature of the world around them. Now, lest we pile on the Corinthians too quickly, we also have a tendency to do this. Like the Corinthians, we also have a tendency to boast and to compare ourselves with one another kind of measure ourselves up and see, see how many people we can outdo. It's so easy to find yourself looking down your nose at other Christians who don't hold the same theological views as you. But Paul would say that this is anti-gospel. We're also tempted to measure success the way that the world does. I'm, I'm tempted to want large crowds to preach to and lots of people to tell me how great of a preacher I am. But that is anti-gospel. It's anti-gospel because everything that we have is a gift from God. Most importantly, our salvation. It's so important that we grasp this because when we start looking to our own accolades and accomplishments, it opens the door for division and quarreling between Christians. Humility is division repellent. It's disunity repellent. But when humility is set aside, it opens the door wide for Satan to come in. And the message that Paul gives in these verses that we're going to believe that that we're going to read, I believe, is summed up in verse thirty-one. It's the last verse we're going to read. It says, "Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord." I think that's a good way to sum up the message that Paul is going to give us. But we all need to hear Paul's words this morning. We all need humility, probably a lot more than we realize. In this passage, Paul gives us what I'm calling three slices of humble pie that we're going to eat this morning, all right? So we're going to eat three slices of humble pie. So we're going to read the passage, and then we're going to eat one at a time. Uh, They're going to be on your, your, you've got uh, sermon notes, and uh, thankfully Thomas let you know beforehand just so that he would know I wouldn't forget. Um, So no, I didn't forget this morning that you have some sermon notes in your seat. So you can follow along there. Let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18 and go through 31. This is the word of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for that word that we just read. I thank you for the Bible. God, I thank you that your gospel is accessible to every single one of us, that you choose the low things of this world, the base things of this world. God, I thank you that you are a God who would condescend and and come down to us who would leave your throne in heaven to come and dwell amongst us and to humble yourself to the point of death on a cross to take the punishment for our sins in our place. God, that's the word of the cross, and it's a word that makes no sense to the world around us. God, I pray that you would help us, help every single person in this room to see just how powerful the word of the cross is this morning. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that today you would open their eyes, that today they would hear the word of the cross and that it would no longer be folly, but that they would say that is the power and wisdom of God, that they would proclaim you, Jesus, as Lord. God, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts this morning. I pray that every believer this morning would be encouraged and exhorted. Lord, I pray that you would humble us because our hearts tend towards pridefulness. We tend to want to exalt ourselves. We tend to want to steal glory from you. We tend to want to compare ourselves with other people. God, please change us this morning through your word. Please help me as I preach. Lord, help me not to depend on my strength or on eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Help me to just to be here in my weakness, and I pray that your strength would speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so y'all ready for the first slice of pie? Slice number one? All right, slice number one, the cross makes no sense to the world. So Paul is speaking to these Corinthian believers who are getting kind of big for their britches, okay? Uh, they're kind of, you know, like thinking, yeah, we're pretty smart. You know, we're, you know, look at us. We're, we're, and they're depending on uh, the wisdom of the world. And so Paul uh, says, okay, first of all, guys, don't forget that the cross that you say you believe in, the gospel that you say you believe, it makes zero sense to the world. Like the world hears that message and thinks, that's crazy. Paul begins in verse 18 with these words. He says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
It's interesting that Paul doesn't say gospel. He says the word of the cross. Did you know that? Notice that? He says the word of the cross instead of just saying the gospel is folly. Why did he use that phrase, the word of the cross, to describe the gospel message? Well, it's because the cross, it's the cross itself that is so hard for the world to swallow. You know, we, we were singing uh, that last song that we sang, there was a line in there that said, the power of the cross. You ever think about the words that you sing? I'd encourage you guys, as we, as when we sing uh, songs on Sunday morning, worship songs, don't just, don't just passively sing these words. Think about what you're singing and think about what you're saying. If you really think about that phrase, the power of the cross, it makes no sense. Think about what the cross is. The, the cross was a, was a, a Roman uh, in, uh, instrument of torture in the first century. It was reserved for the worst of the worst of criminals. Roman citizens were exempt from being executed on a cross. No matter what you did, if you were a Roman citizen, they would never subject you to being crucified on a cross. It was unmentionable in proper company. It, you, you just didn't talk about it. It was the most... Uh, excruciating way, in the most humiliating way you could possibly execute someone publicly. It was humiliating. You were stripped naked. You were hung up for all to see. They did it public execution style. This was not behind closed doors. Everyone was invited. It was a community event to come and watch you and mock you as you hung there on a cross. And, and, and we're singing about the power of the cross, Paul says, guys, don't forget, that sounds crazy to the world. The world doesn't see any power in the cross. They see weakness in the cross. They see foolishness in the cross. They hear about a Savior who was crucified on a cross, and they go, who would worship a Savior like that? Paul goes on to explain in verses 19 to 21 that this is not an accident. God actually designed it this way. Look at verse 21. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God is pleased to save people through a message that a prideful world looks at and says, that's foolish. That's God's design. Jesus prayed to the Father in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He's hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God has intentionally veiled himself from being known by human wisdom because God hates arrogant boasting. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why is God so adamantly opposed to pride? That's because all sin is rooted in pride. Pride says, I don't need God to be in control and I don't want him to be in control. I'm in control. I want to be God. I want to call the shots in my life. I don't want to do what anybody tells me to do, including God. Pride is nothing less than a, than a direct challenge to God's throne. That's why God does not like it at all. 
God does not want people to boast that they know him because of their own wisdom or their own intellect because he knows that we would be prone to do that. That's one of Paul's points to the Corinthians. It makes no sense to be infatuated with worldly wisdom when worldly wisdom is passing away. You can't even know God through worldly wisdom. God has designed it so that worldly wisdom can't know him. We can't attain salvation by worldly wisdom. So why would you spend your time chasing after worldly wisdom and worldly accolades? Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, he, he, he quotes um, from, uh, let's see, from uh, Isaiah 29 right there, and he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You shouldn't put your eggs in the basket of worldly wisdom because it's passing away. I was watching a, a new documentary that came out on Netflix this week about Bill Gates. Has anybody seen any of it yet? A couple of you guys have. Um, he's an absolute genius who has solved some of the world's most complex problems. It's really a fascinating documentary, and, um, and, and uh, it was talking a lot about his uh, philanthropy and his uh, mission to solve the world's sanitation problems. And he's, I mean, he's done some amazing things, and his brain works at a level that I think very few people on the planet can do. And yet, as smart as Bill Gates is, his wisdom is foolishness compared to God's wisdom. If Bill Gates does not have godly wisdom, then he's a fool. You realize that, right? Like, that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is telling us. He can solve all sorts of problems, but his entire life will have been spent in vain. What a tragedy. What's even more sad is that deep down he knows it. Uh, In the documentary, uh, when he was asked what his greatest fear is, an, an aging Gates replied, my greatest fear is that my brain would stop working. And sadly, it will. It will stop working. It will begin to fade. Uh, his memory will begin to to pass, and eventually it will stop working altogether, just like mine will, and just like yours will. Our brains, our strength, it's all finite. We need a wisdom and strength that is not our own. And that wisdom and strength is the wisdom and strength in the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ that appears foolish and weak to the world. Jesus did not come as a military conqueror on a white horse. He came as a baby growing up as the son of a Jewish carpenter. He died a humiliating, excruciating death on a Roman cross, naked and abandoned. He was buried in a tomb, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. And now he calls people to deny themselves and take up their own cross daily to follow him. Everything about this message is the opposite of the way the world thinks. Everything about it. Paul lays out several different reactions to the gospel that should sound familiar. Look at verses 22 through 24. Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So when the gospel is proclaimed, some hear it and scoff. Some hear it 
or some hear it and stumble. Paul said that the gospel was a stumbling block to Jews. This is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah predicts that the Messiah will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And many of the Jews were certainly offended by Jesus and by the gospel. Just ask Paul. He had firsthand knowledge of that. He had the scars on his body to prove it. Man is so offended so greatly over Christ crucified and risen because human pride hates the idea that we can only be saved by faith in Christ alone. Human pride hates hearing, you are not strong enough. You are not wise enough. You are not righteous enough. But the first step in coming to Christ is admitting exactly that. We have to realize that we fall short of God's glorious standards. We can't earn our way to God. We are helpless to deal with our sin, and we need a Savior. Some hear it and stumble, and some hear it and scoff. Others hear the gospel message, and they think that's nonsense. It simply makes no sense to the world, because the word of the cross calls us to admit our own weakness, to deny ourselves, to stop being in charge of our own lives, and and surrender our lives in full trust to Jesus. Worldly wisdom hears that and thinks, that's crazy. Most of the world around us lives to maximize as much pleasure and comfort as they possibly can in this life with no hope for the next. Guys, the world is in a delusion, oblivious to the obvious fact that we have a creator that we're accountable to, a God before whom every one of us will stand to give an account of our lives. Some hear this gospel message, the word of the cross, and they stumble. Some hear it and scoff, and then some hear it and are saved. And we can't take credit for that. If that's you and you've heard the word of the cross and you believe it and you've been saved, you can't take credit. It's complete grace because it's not our own worldly wisdom or intellect that causes us to believe. This actually leads us into our second slice of humble pie. The only reason that you and I heard the word of the cross and said, yes, I believe is the call of God. The call of God comes by grace alone. The call of God comes by grace alone. You know, it would be very silly for me to go around bragging about how clean I keep my house. Why? Because I know good and well that the only reason our house looks presentable is because of my wife. If anything, I'm a deterrent from our house looking clean, so I shouldn't go around bragging about how clean it is. I should go around boasting in gin and in her cleanliness and in her ability to keep the house clean. All the wives are like, amen. That's kind of what we do, though, when we start getting, you know, boastful about knowing God, isn't it? There's really no reason a Christian should ever be boastful about anything except Jesus, because we deserve condemnation just like everyone else. The only reason we have forgiveness is because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And further still, the only reason we believe is because we've been called. Why is it, have you ever thought about this, why is it that some hear the word of the cross and say folly, and others hear the word of the cross and say glory? Why? What's the difference? It's right there in the passage. Look at verse 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but listen to this right here, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This isn't Jared's idea. I'm showing you exactly what's in the text, showing you exactly what the Word of God says. There are some who stumble, some who scoff, and then there are some who are called. And that's the difference. This is not an isolated thought either. If we slip down just a couple more verses to verses 27 and 28, we see the same thought again. Listen to this this word, this, this refrain that's repeated several times. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. What Paul is teaching us here is that the call of God is not merely the preaching of the gospel, because many hear the gospel preach and are, are called in one sense to believe, but they stumble or scoff, right? There's a general call to believe the gospel that goes out to everybody, but not everybody believes. So that's not the type of call that Paul is talking about. It can't be the type of Paul that, uh, call, man, that's hard, the type of call that Paul is talking about here. Those who believe are called in a completely different effectual way. It is a call that opens their eyes, that causes them to say the cross of Christ is the wisdom and power of God, while the rest of the world is hearing the same thing and going, that's foolish. I reject that. I hate that. I do not want to believe that message. So what does this mean? It means that if you're a Christian, there is no room for boasting. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, says Ephesians 2, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. You were spiritually raised from the dead when Jesus called you, just like he called Lazarus to come forth out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out. When that call went out, The dead man rose and came walking out of the tomb, and it was the call of Jesus Christ that made it happen. Lazarus had nothing to do that day with walking out of that grave. He was dead. He couldn't breathe. He was already rotting as a corpse. It smelled bad, and they told Jesus, are you sure you want to go close to it? And and with a word, the Son of God said, come out. And he got up out of the tomb and walked on out of the grave. And if you were a Christian, that's exactly what happened to you. You were spiritually dead, but then the call of God came. That's the only reason that you're a Christian. And this should do a few things inside of you. First, it should cause you to give God all the glory for your salvation. It should cause you to give God all the glory for your salvation. After all, it was all His doing, so there's no room for boasting. If it was you that had chosen God, you could boast that you had chosen to believe in Him while others didn't. God will not have that. He will not stand for that. There is no room for boasting. If you are progressing faster in holiness than another believer... Sorry, I lost my spot. If it was you that chose God, you could boast that you had chosen Him when others didn't. But you didn't choose God. He chose you. 
John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus says, You didn't chose me, but I chose you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. This should also cause us to be gracious towards others. How can we look down on another person when we know good and well that but for the grace of God go I? The grace of the gospel should eliminate all snubbery and, and, and boasting, looking down at other people. The gracious call of God should also cause us to be glad in God's blessed assurance. It should cause us to be glad in God's blessed assurance. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says that those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Those who are called are justified. That means that if you have been called, and if you've repented of your sins, and you've trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, then you've been called. If you are called, then you are justified. Everyone who is called is justified. God doesn't lose anybody. 100 out of 100 people who are called will be justified. Not a single one falls through the cracks. God will not decide not to justify you. Otherwise, He would be a liar, and God cannot lie. Listen to Jesus' words from John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. That passage is incredible. What a powerful passage. What a rock-solid assurance that should give us. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If the devil wants you, he's got to go through Jesus. Good luck. All right. Slice number three, God doesn't choose impressive people. God doesn't choose impressive people. The call of God comes by grace alone, and it comes to the people that you wouldn't expect. If salvation were a game of pickup basketball, the world would pick us last. Christians would be the last ones to be picked. But God says, I'll take the short, skinny kid with the terrible jump shot. First round draft pick. That's who I want. Listen again to, to verses 26 to 29. Paul says, consider your calling, brother. So he's calling us as Christians. Think about where you came from. You ever heard like a pro athlete say that? Don't forget where you came from. It means like don't forget your humble roots. That's what Paul's calling us to do. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God purposefully chooses those that the world ignores so that no one will boast in His presence. We see this over and over and over again in Scripture. God chose the nation of Israel and brought them out of slavery when they had nothing to offer. 
They were a, a people group enslaved in Egypt, and he graciously chose them and, and delivered them out of slavery. God chose David to be the next king of Israel, even though he was the youngest of all of his brothers. God chose Gideon, a man who was so afraid of the Midianites that he was hiding in a hole when God found him and chose Gideon to be the military leader of Israel to deliver them from the Midianites. Even Gideon was surprised that he got chosen. He was like, are you serious? Me? Like, why me? Jesus chose a ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors and political extremists to be his 12 disciples that he would invest his entire ministry in before he handed it off to the church. I mean, the guy who wrote this letter that we're reading this morning, 1 Corinthians, Paul, he used to be Saul, and he literally made it a career to go around throwing Christians in jail. Like, nobody would have picked Saul. Nobody would have picked Saul to to be the apostle to the Gentiles, except God. God loves to pick people that the world passes over or looks down on. He loves to exalt the lowly. We see this over and over in Scripture. Let me ask you a question. Are you discouraged because you too often shrink back when you should be bold in your faith? Are you discouraged at your selfish tendencies this week? Maybe you just came in this morning just down on yourself because you just feel like you blew it spiritually this week. Maybe you had a a fight with your spouse this morning. Maybe you lost your temper and you flipped somebody off in the car on the way over here. Do you sometimes think that God couldn't use you because you struggle too much with doubt? Then you're in good company. Let me challenge you to go read through the Gospels one at a time and see these exact same weaknesses in the 12 disciples that Jesus chose like literally the same things that you are down on yourself about, we see those same things in the disciples. We see the disciples being selfish. They're on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus knows he's about to be executed on a Roman cross for their sins. And they're arguing over which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven after three years of listening to Jesus' teaching. Like, sometimes I wonder if Jesus just wanted to pull his hair out with these guys. Like, are you serious? Do you not listen to me? And yet, that's not what Jesus did, did it? Jesus never never got tired of them. He never said, all right, that's it. I'm going to go find some new disciples. You guys are hopeless. You're never going to change. I can't, I can't even with you guys anymore. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He's patient with them. He specifically chose them, and he bore with them. You may feel like a worthless nobody, but as John MacArthur said, worthless nobodies are just the kind of people that God uses. Why is it that God uses those that the world ignores? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so that the one who boasts, boasts only in the Lord. God chooses the weak so that there's never a question as, so, as to who deserves the glory. Maybe you're here today and you're hearing something like this for the very first time. Maybe you've been trying to put your best foot forward for God for your entire life, hoping that at the end, when you stand before Him, maybe it'll be good enough. 
Maybe he'll accept you into heaven. Maybe he'll let you into his kingdom because you did enough good things and you weren't that bad after all. If that's you, then this is such good news for you this morning, this passage. You don't have to keep being haunted by that nagging feeling of, I never feel like I'm good enough. The reality is, you aren't strong. You are weak. You are foolish. God is not impressed by you. And you know what? This morning, you can rest in the reality that you can accept that, you can embrace that, and you can let God's strength be made perfect through your weakness. You can start doing that this morning. You don't have to keep trying to shoulder something that you can't shoulder at all. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. It's the last. I just want to point this out to you in our passage. Paul says, Because of Him, of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That little phrase, you are in Christ Jesus, is massive. It could be a sermon in and of itself, but what it means is this. It means that if anyone trusts in Jesus then Jesus becomes for us what we could never be on our own. We are foolish, but He is our wisdom. We are guilty, but He is our righteousness. We are unholy, but He is our sanctification. We are slaves, but He is our redemption. By faith, Jesus' wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption belong to you. It's a free gift. And now we are called to go forth and boast in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Have you received this free gift before? If you haven't, let me invite you to do that today. In just a moment, the band, I'm going to ask the, the, the worship team to come up. And in just a moment, uh, when we play the closing song, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. You can do that in your seat. As we're singing, you can confess to God that I know I don't measure up. I know that I'm not wise enough. I know that I'm not righteous enough. I know that I've been trying to measure up my entire life and I see for the first time this morning, God, that I can't. I fall short. I need a Savior. But God, I believe today that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus died for the, on the cross for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead that he's alive, and I want you to forgive me of my sins. I want you to come into my life and change me. Let me encourage you to do that. Listen, I'll tell you what. You know, I think one of the reasons that, that we pass up opportunities like this to respond to the call of the gospel is because we're afraid of what people around us are going to think. I'm going to ask you to, to when, we, when we come to do this closing song and we all stand up, I'm going to ask you to come to the back and there's going to be people back there that you can pray with. Whether you want to place your faith in Jesus for the first time, or whether you just know that and you've been struggling this week, or you've been backsliding, and you just, you just need to come back to the foot of the cross, you need to come back to Jesus, and you need to get right with Him, whatever that might be, I'm going to ask you to get up and respond and go back there. Here's the thing. The fear of what other people around us are going to think about us is what keeps us oftentimes from taking that step that God may be calling us to make. But hear what we just read this morning. Okay, The word of the cross is foolishness to the world. 
right? It, the, the call of the gospel is a call to forsake what the world thinks about you, what, what people here are going to think about you. And here's the deal. Like nobody in this room is going to think anything like less of you. If anything, I, I think we're going to praise, praise God and rejoice with you if you respond to the call of the gospel this morning. Don't let the fear of what the world's going to think about you or what other people are going to think about you keep you from responding in this moment to what God's doing in your heart. If He's calling you, then obey Him. Take that step of faith and trust Him this morning. And Christians, you know, it's, it's easy for us to forget, too, that God works through our weakness. We have to be reminded of it constantly. That's why Paul had to remind the Corinthian believers. This morning, as I was wrapping up, preparing for this message, I was looking at uh, verse 17 of chapter 1. And in verse 17, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Even as I read that, read that, I, I realized that I was striving too hard to find eloquent words of wisdom to try and drive home this sermon. In 2 Corinthians, the, the next letter that Paul writes in chapter 10, we read that there were many people who said that Paul's bodily presence was weak and his speech was of no account. Apparently, Paul wasn't impressive to look at and he wasn't impressive to listen to. People didn't really, you know, weren't impressed with him. He didn't measure up to the, the orders of the day. They considered him a weak speaker. He wouldn't have been probably on the top 100 podcasted preachers if they had podcasting back then. But Paul was perfectly content with that. He knew God's power worked through his weakness. And you need to hear that this morning, church. We're swimming in a culture in which the current flows in the opposite direction. Our culture promotes the wisdom and the power of man. But God's wisdom says you must become a child. You must become weak. So the question for every Christian in this room this morning, the question you need to wrestle with is, are you okay with that? If not, you may not be as devoted to God's glory as you think you are. And truth be told, I think all of us could use some work in this area. My prayer is that God would make us a humble people, starting with me. So let's respond this morning by humbling ourselves before God. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand together, and we're going to sing. And if God's calling you to respond this morning, to give your life to Him, then there's going to be men and women at the back that you can go and talk to. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you so much that you choose weak people that you choose those the world uh, considers foolish those the world overlooks God I thank you that you have set us free from the burden of trying to measure up to others or to work our way to you we can stop striving and we can rest knowing that our God is gracious and merciful he is good he has chosen us by his grace and Lord, I pray that, that that knowledge would make us a humble people. That we would never forget the grace that has called us. I pray that that knowledge would help us to be gracious towards others. I pray that that knowledge would help us not to, to overlook people around us, God. That we wouldn't ever dismiss somebody because we feel like 
they're lesser than the others around them. Lord, help us to be a gracious people. Help us to be a a humble people. Help us to boast in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. We love you and we thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.